Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Lockbox, a podcast providing real estate professionals with action items for success. My name is Jeffrey Broger, and I'm going to be your host. I'm the founder of two real estate marketing and tech companies, Steezy.Digital and RealNurture.io. In this podcast, you'll learn from top 1% real estate and mortgage brokers the exact secrets to their success. Welcome to Lockbox. Welcome to Lockbox. My name is Jeffrey Broger. I'm here today with Janelle Wilson. Janelle, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's start off. Tell our listeners who you are, where you're from. I'm Janelle Wilson. I'm a buy and hold investor from Philadelphia. And I do small multifamily, mostly duplexes, triplexes, and quads. I'm dying to get into commercial, but people keep throwing triplexes at me. And I can't say no <laughs> because I got my please. But um, yeah, I'm hoping to hopefully branch off into commercial, hopefully soon. But yeah. All right. That's the- well, let's talk about commercial after the show or maybe during the show. <laughs> But yeah. uh, I'm, I want our listeners to hear the story of what got you into real estate. Yeah. So my dad had a duplex across the street from my grandmother. So as a young kid, I would always see him going across the street, picking up rent and come back with money. And I've always been a saver. I've always been into coins. As a hobby, I would wrap up some extra change I found around the house and take it to the bank. So always seeing that, having an eye, I knew that property equaled money. So as the years went on, um, my parents got divorced and my dad kind of let the property go. Um, he still had it, but it became vacant. Um, you know, rain, a roof was bad and it started to fall apart. But as time went on, I lost touch with him and I kind of forgot about the property. And when I went to college, my last year of college, my grandmother, who was still across the street, she let me know that it's about to go to share sale. And if I wanted to save it, I had to come down and pay the taxes. So I came down, found out that I owed about 5000 in taxes. I got a student loan and I paid that off. Now, I was still in school at the time, so I, I went back to school. I forgot about it again. And when I started working, um, I still wasn't really trying to mess with it too much. I just started you know, working, had a good job. I got a new car. And then I got a call that the city was about to tear it down because once your house is vacant for, for X amount of years and the wall was falling apart in the back, um, the city will tear it down so it doesn't get worse. So I had to go and find out what the violations are. And I remember this like yesterday because of the emotion that I felt. They were reading off the violations and it sounds so, so terrible. And you got to do this and code violation that. And if I didn't fix it within like the next two weeks, um, they were going to tear it down. And as um, they were telling me the story, a contractor was there and he heard the story and he said, I can fix it for you. And it was like the clouds opened up and it was like, oh, 
was like, really? Oh my gosh. So um, he did. He went and gave me an estimate. He fixed all the bad joists. He fixed the wall that was falling apart. Oh, the way I paid for that was um, with a cash advance on my credit card. I don't recommend cash advances, but it was like all I knew at the time. So yeah, I got the stuff fixed. And then I'm at this point again where, all right, I then spent 10000 on the slaves. What do I do now? So I got a few more estimates and they were all so high. It was a total rehab. Um, and I was like, I don't have the money. I don't know what to do. I think I'm just going to sell it. So um, I got an offer of like $45,000 and I was like, do I know the condition? He was like, yeah. And I said, well, if they're interested in it, maybe then I should keep it. So it, it kind of helped me see the potential. So I kept it. And um, shortly after, my mom's um, a cosmetologist and she has clients and I happened to be there and one of them had a house around the corner from it. She had just refinanced her house and it was a drive-by appraisal and she got a loan for $60,000. So I was like, aha, I can do the same thing. So I fixed up the outside of the house. This was back in 2004. So they were doing drive-by appraisals. They were doing... (laughs) you know, those loans where you didn't have to show any documents. So apparently getting money was easy. I wish I had taken advantage sooner or did more, but anyway, it it got me in the door. Uh, So I picked up the outside, um, new windows, new doors painted, uh, crossed my fingers and prayed and it appraised for $70,000. So out of that, I had to pay the old mortgage. I had to pay the the water and all kinds of other liens. I wound up paying another $45,000 in liens and judgments. So if I had sold it, I wouldn't have made any money. I would have been mad. So I'm glad I kept it. Um, but anyway, I had about $20,000 left over. I decided to work with that same contractor, even though I, I kind of had a bad feeling about him, but I didn't know how to find contractors at the time. I didn't want right. to. Yeah. I mean, you're so new. I mean, you're right out of college at this point. Like you're just figuring it out. Just like, I guess I'll do this. Uh, This doesn't feel right. I'm going to do that. (laughs) Yeah. We'll just try it anyway. What's the worst that could happen? I didn't know what the worst that happened, but you know what happened? He he ran off. Um, You know, his workers were like, yeah, he's not paying us. So I decided to pay the workers directly. So they finished up the job and when it was all said and done, I got two section eight tenants in there and I started cash flowing $700 a month. And from that moment on, I had just forgot all the pain that I had been through, all the drama with the city, the contractors, the neighbors, like everyone. And I was like, I'm ready to do this again. So that was my first experience. And it it turned into, you know, even though I paid probably market value for it, what I got from it was the perspective of real estate investing. I got to see that I could use these loans, use a home equity loan, my student loan, my credit cards, you know, no money that I use myself. And I was able to to make a a cash flowing, you know, rental property. So it gave me great, great origin story. Love that origin story. When I when I read it, I was like, I got to have her on the show. So now you, you've been in the game for like 17 plus years and you're doing some awesome stuff with credit. I mean, let's talk about some credit hacks and, you know, getting 100% financing on deals, yeah. avoiding tying up capital. Because I know as an investor, using other people's money is always attractive, but some investors mm-hmm. are like a little bit weary to do that for whatever reason. And so I'm really curious to to hear some of your hacks. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people are taught credit cards are bad. Um, we shouldn't use them, um, pay them off immediately. But when you're buying an asset, it's going to be making cash flow. It's going to appreciate in years. It's really just like short-term financing. They have these offers that are 0%. They make you pay like a 3% transfer fee. And as long as you 
like plan ahead and just make sure you have an exit strategy, they are a great tool. And because I started with my first property doing it, I was already comfortable. So once I discovered the balance transfer checks that we get mailed and probably toss out, um, I happened to just read it one day. I say, hey, why does it say 0%? So I called them and asked a question. I had a, a $20,000 limit at the time. And back then, it was about 2009, we could buy houses in Philly for $20,000. So I could use one card and buy a whole property with it. And then I would refinance out of it and pay my card back. So I was doing the, what they call the birth strategy um, very early. And then um, I discovered hard money loans. So I would pair the credit cards with the hard money loans and essentially not pay any of my own money out of pocket. And I started doing bigger deals. So if I had mm. to put a down payment of 20000 I could buy a property that was worth, you know, 100000 And then I just kept working my up. My credit lines kept getting bigger because I kept using my card. You know, the more you use your cars, the more credit that they, they give you. And so right. I just took advantage of that. I kept growing. I just made sure, you know, the, the biggest thing is you're buying um, under market value properties. You're doing a bird strategy, making sure when you refinance out that you pay, you can pay the hard money lender. And and the credit cards back. So I was putting in some sweat equity of repairing the house and forcing the value that way, just to make sure I could pay everything off. So that's the that's the biggest thing. You don't want to go into a bidding war and get a, a rehab house and and put a down payment with your credit card and, and a, a commercial loan. Then you just want to make sure that you're buying under market value properties and get your money back out quickly. Right. So let me ask you this: with, mm-hmm. I have a credit card in my hand, and let's imagine the credit line on it is. $30,000. So when you find an under market property, how do you like, they don't have like a, you know, electronic fund transfer processing machine where you like swipe your credit card and it's like, okay, right. I'm going to purchase this house swipe. So how, ex- no, how like, logistically does it actually work? Like, do you take a cash advance? Yeah. Are you doing the balance transfer check that then goes into your checking account and then you buy it cash? Do you have to wait for yeah. those balance transfer checks to be sent? Cause they only send those like once a year, if that, like, wh- how does it work? So you get cards that have them often. I use like a Citibank okay. card. They have them all the time and Discover have them a lot. So they they have, as long as you don't use the card a lot, they try to get you to use them. So whenever your balance is zero mm. for a while, they start to sell them to you. So yeah, Got you it. use those balance transfer cards or the, or the checks. And also if you use online banking, you can elect to have a direct deposit into the account that you use to pay your bills. And that happens within within days. So it is very easy to get this cash. But for some cards who might have a 0% purchase offer, then you got to right. get a little tricky. You have to use uh, sites like PayPal or Plastique. Um, they do charge a 3% fee, but it's just the same as paying a balance transfer fee. So yeah, there's all kinds of tricks to get the cash into your account. Just make sure you plan ahead and in case it takes a week or so to clear. But yeah, you put the cash in your account and you can use it any way you want. Just make sure you pay it back within the 12 or 18 months before the interest rate skyrockets. You know, they're hoping that you don't pay it back in that right. time, but well, make sure because the interest good contract. Because yes, the interest yes. kicks in for the whole sure period. You know, yeah, so it, it, it'll kick in for the amount. They won't right. back charge you like with Home Depot. Well, they will they will charge you the whole interest for the whole period. Oh wow. So so you gotta make sure you have a good contractor already. Make sure you have a bank that's gonna refinance you out or a, a way to flip it just to make sure that you're not stuck with that high interest rate when you're done. Wow. Makes total sense. And you know, that comes a little bit with time, but also, you know, going to real estate investment meetings. Do you ever go to local real estate investment meetings? 
Absolutely. I tell everyone you have to network. You got to build your network, got to get relationships. So, so definitely that is the first step in real estate investing because, you know, people are information and information gets you a, a leg up when you're investing. So you learn different strategies, you learn different banks to use, you learn about credit cards, you learn what everyone is doing. And so the more people you network with, the more, more tools you have in your bag, the more successful you will be. So yes, I definitely go to those. I can't wait to start going again, you know, with COVID and doing them online, I'm kind of burnt out from the online ones. So <laughs> Not the I am same, excited. Yeah. yeah, we're going to go to like a summit uh, in November. So yes, I'm excited to go out there and network again. Yeah. And one of the biggest things I learned from going to meetings like those are that there's the contractors, there's the capital, you know, everyone's in place. You know, you can find a real estate agent if you need one. You can find a real estate lawyer if you need one. Like they're all there waiting for the deal. Yeah. Right. So, so my question for you is how are you sourcing deals? So I get deals all kinds of ways, but now I have my network already built up. So they're just coming to me constantly. But the way you built that network up is I use, I use realtors. I have several of them because they're all in different areas and have, you know, what they're strong in. I use wholesalers. My, um, my hard money lender, whenever he has to, has to foreclose on someone, he calls me. So we got deals all over the place. There are always deals. There's always people dying. There's always people that are in distress. So there are always opportunities. And it's a lot of people who they're like, how do you find deals in this market? It's a hot market. People, things are going over above asking price. I said, well, that's only on the MLS. There are so many different ways <laughs> to get properties. So the more people you meet, the more successful you'll be, the more access to deals you will have. You know, you got to get that funnel of the deals coming in by, you know, networking and meeting people and starting relationships. True that. It's so important to build up that network. And the one-liner is your network is equivalent to your net worth, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. You don't really understand it until you really see it. But yeah, um, you know, having a network of good lenders too is important because if you can close deals, the deals come even faster because they're like, hey, Janelle's a closer. I'm bringing her this deal. I know what she likes. I'm going to go get what she likes just so because I know she's a closer. So you have a good network of lenders and credit cards. <laughs> you can close on so many deals and the wholesalers will always bring them to you. That's awesome. And you seem like you're such a go-getter. I mean, you seem like someone who dives in, isn't afraid to, you know, roll your sleeves up and just like get in it and learn it. So I'm super curious, you know, what's the single most important action that you would attribute most to your success over your career? Is there like one thing well, that boils think, down to? I think part of it was my first property. It had so many learning opportunities and it was it was a total rehab. I mean, like I said, the, the joists were bad, the walls were bad, the ceiling, everything was bad. So it's like everything that no one would do, I got it all at once. And so that made me fearless. So I'm like, there's nothing I can't do. There's nothing I can't, I can't figure out. Um, as long as I know the learning, the learning curve isn't too steep. So as I've grown, I've always grown incrementally. I never grow too big because I need to make sure because I know there's things I don't know. So I make sure I don't get overwhelmed too much. So I just make sure the next big thing is like a little step above. So that's how I'm able to, to, to tackle new projects. If I'm like, huh, this is almost like this project, but this part is different. I think I can handle this different thing. I can figure it out. And then that boils down to your network again. It's like, I know I can call so-and-so because they, they do this type of thing. If I need advice, they'll help me out. So yeah, 
I think is because I have that confidence from my first property. I have the confidence in my network. It's just about having the confidence and just knowing knowing that you have the discipline and the motivation to power through anything. So I know I'm very disciplined. Um, my my motivation gets a little stressed sometimes, but uh, yeah, you just have a disciplined motivation and confidence in your network and your abilities. Yeah, that's fascinating. I really appreciate your mindset. I can do anything. I can learn anything. You know, where does that come from? I think just being hit from all kinds of stuff and just it's all about information. Information is at our fingertips, literally. I can go on YouTube, find things. I can get ideas. It may not be exactly what I'm looking for, but it might be what I need to give me an idea. And I know that with social media, I know that with people, the information out there, someone has had that experience or an experience like it. And because I'm comfortable dealing with people, I feel like I can get the information out of them, either by paying them or just by trading, whatever. So as long as I know the information out there, which it always is, I feel like I can get it. Okay. Yeah. I appreciate that mindset. And I'm a subscriber of the same mindset. You know, we can go learn anything. We can pay someone and get a shortcut by, you know, having a mentor there, or we can just go put in the time and search it. So with that being said, where do you think the industry is heading? I'm mostly cur- curious in the short term for you as a real estate investor. As you mentioned, even with the MLS, you know, houses selling for 150,000 over asking, 200, 300,000 over asking, I've heard crazy. Um, yeah. On the MLS, which is like great for the listing agents and for the sellers, but people are asking you, how are you still finding deals, right? And you're saying, well, off MLS, of course. But yeah. some have thought like, oh, with the, the Fed, the last stimulus is, is still in holding, but you know, the last one to be approved and then that's it. And then, you know, the, the rent controls and the things that have been put in place are about to be lifted. So there's some fear around like what's going to happen with the stock market in the short term within the next six months to 12 months, what's going to happen with the housing market in correlation with that. If four or 5 million businesses are going to go bankrupt. And then all those entrepreneurs will then potentially, you know, lose their houses and there'll be an influx of inventory and the prices will go down. Like there's so many macroeconomic issues going on. So I'm really curious from the real estate investment side, someone who's been doing it for so long, what's your short-term prediction? So it's really tough because these are really unprecedented times. You know, we have never dealt with a pandemic. So what that means is that there's less stuff on the market because sellers didn't want to have people in and out of their houses. So we have less inventory and there is so much money in the economy. So it's like a double whammy. We have so much cash, which already drives up prices. It drives up the stock market. It drives up crypto. It drives up home prices. And then the fact that there's less on the market has increased it even more. So I, I'm curious myself. I think eventually they have to stop propping it up because, you know, people are still out of jobs. You know, they've been been paying the unemployment. People haven't been working. So I think they have to do this incrementally, but eventually things are going to fall apart because we're just being propped up with stilts. And when it does happen, I think people, there are people who are waiting on the the sidelines for the market to crash because they've been talking about it crashing since since you know, 2016. <laughs> yeah, 2016. But now that yeah. we actually have something, we actually have something that 
it's, it's like inevitable. And I think the government is just trying to delay it. But eventually, I think it's going to it's going to happen. I don't know if COVID is going to ramp back up in the fall, which it probably will. And if that will induce more more of the um, of the cash in, in the system. But eventually things are going to come to a slow halt or a fast halt, something. People who have cash, people who have good credit, people who um, know how to spot a good deal still, they're going to be very successful when it's time to clean up. And uh, I have good credit. So um, I have my lenders ready and I'll be ready to take advantage. All right. There you go. I tend to agree with you that, you know, we can't just keep kicking the can down the road and expect to never pay the piper. (laughs) Like It's going to happen. It's just a, a... question of when. And, you know, if I knew the answer to that question, then I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast because <laughs> I would have the keys to the kingdom. But, you know, with that, with that being said, it's, it's a, a fascinating thing to talk about, especially, you know, cause I represent residential agents, commercial agents and help them with marketing. You know, I, I'm an investor myself. I, I also help investors find off market deals. And I'm always just keeping my finger on the pulse of what experts like yourself feel is coming. And, you know, I, I watched, I'm a part of this paid options newsletter. And last week, the, uh, the guy talked about how, you know, the S&P 500 has been on a massive run. Like the bulls are, are on parade, right? They're just charging. You're, he's not going to short that right now, but he, he's I saying a similar it. thing. Yeah. You, you, you yeah, sold? Like, my, yeah, yeah, I did. Um, because I just think everything is overvalued. So right. Um, right. even if it goes up more before it comes down, I'm, I still feel fine. I put myself all into bonds. Um, I refinanced a bunch of properties. So I took the cash out. And like I said, I have it with satellites waiting. Um, so, but what has the consensus been from the people that you've heard? Well, it's pretty similar to that. Like, okay, yeah, it's been going up. But if you're okay with it dipping and taking some losses for it to then eventually recover, why wouldn't you be okay just pulling out and being on the sidelines for a little yeah. while and, and mi- maybe missing out on some gains, but then also missing out on a potential correction that's very, very yeah. soon on the horizon. So that was the mm-hmm. consensus was like, he's not betting long on any stock right now because, okay. you know, a lot of, and, and for me, you know, the S&P is like, kind of like my long play, you know, I've only pulled it out a couple of times over the last 10 years, like the day before the presidential election, and then it dipped a thousand, yeah. I got back in the next day kind of thing. Um, I've timed it pretty well so far, but for the most part, it's like, I believe in what a lot of famous investors say, like, you can't mm-hmm. beat the S&P over, you know, any long period of time. So just leave your money in it. But with that being said, I do believe in pulling it out at sometimes because it's like, if we've been on this massive run and we're hitting this resistance. I think, I think Warren Buffett sold a lot of stuff last year because he felt like it was overpriced. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, Hey, I like Warren Buffett. So I'm like, he thinks it's overpriced. I think it's overpriced too. I mean, like I said, I can tell with these, with the house housing market that things are overpriced. So. Right. So it's, it's interesting and you know, it's nice to ride the wave up, but when everyone's saying get in, that's when you have to get out. Right. That's right. And when, that's right. And when there's blood in the streets, that's when you buy. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's just psychology, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, back on focusing on you and what you're doing, I'm curious about Section Eight housing, turn oh. veteran housing programs, and I would love to hear more about that. It's such an interesting category to get into because the government is helping subsidize those rents. So for an investor, it's very interesting. 
but I'm not sure like what red tape or regulations involved, you know, so I would love insight on this. Yeah. So, you know, there's certain people who rely on the government to pay their food and their housing because it's guaranteed. Don't have to worry. Then there's those folks who work for the government. Like I used to work for the USDA, my aunt is the DEA, the VA, because I've always believed that the government was secure and safe. So my whole family's in the government. So I took it the next step up. And so I contract with the government. So I get most of my rents through the government, through Section 8. And they also have other programs for veterans, um, people in recovery. Like there's all types of programs. And once you get on the Section 8 list, they contact because they know that you're willing to work with these companies. So mm. the reason why I said it because I just felt like it was secure. And if anything goes wrong with the government, I'm pretty sure there's other things we got to worry about. <laughs> so um, when I did that, I feel like it made me more comfortable with all the leverage and loans that I use. You know, using the credit cards, using um, when I refinance, when I take up the eighty, up to eighty percent. So I have mortgages on. I have I have on most of my properties now. The ones that I had early, those are paid off. But because I'm so comfortable with this money coming in, it leaves me available to take on a lot of risk, a lot of risk with what I'm buying, a lot of risk with um, how much debt that I have out on the next properties that are not cash flowing yet because those are still paying. So when you get involved, when you get involved in these uh, programs, it gives you a level of comfort so that you can take on bigger and better and riskier stuff. So they have a lot of business. Yeah. Yeah. Can I touch on that really quick before you continue? As an investor, we look at risk, right? Yeah. So if you're looking at the risk of an underlying asset and you're wondering, man, I really want this quadplex in Texas, but what if my rent isn't getting paid? Then I have to cover... $2,500 a month and try and fill it and this and that. But with the value of what you're you're saying is that with Section 8, there's a list of people waiting to get in. And the government pays like 75% of the rents. They're getting like a four bedroom house for $300 a month or whatever it is in your area. And if they stop paying and fall out, the next family is in there. Mm-hmm. That eliminates I mean, so much risk from the investment. And like you said, then you can be confident in leveraging yourself and growing your portfolio and not needing to have that extra kind of conservationist, like I'm in this by myself kind of mentality, right? Yeah. And I can I can control that as long as I keep, as long as I pass inspection, I know I'll get paid. So there is no uncertainty at whether or not I get paid. It's all in my control. I like things that I can control. So I can control who rents my place. I can control who fixes it up. I control all these things. And I like the control that I have in real estate and use a section eight because I know what I need to do to get paid. And, you know, a lot of tenants, they want to stay on a program. So they will pay you this like a, an extra layer of accountability. I can go to section eight and say she's not paying her rent and they will cut her off. So a lot of them who've been on there for a long time and they appreciate the program, they will continue to pay you. They stay forever. As long as you're a good landlord, you fix stuff. I mean, you have to keep the place up to standards. But as long as you're a good, fair landlord, they stay forever. I have like my my tenants die. <laughs> they don't move out, but they die. I pick good people going in. And so my turnover rates are so low. Um, and it's a misconception that these are bad programs. It really is. So and because of that misconception. Let's talk about that for just just a second as well. You know, being a defensive investor, and you know, and not only that, but like more so, how to be a community and tenant focused landlord. You know, like yeah, I feel like there is you know so many disagreements in this area. It's like landlords versus tenants, <laughs> but yeah. you know what you're saying is you know if you create an amazing opportunity, then people appreciate it. Yes, yeah, yeah, you. And, if you- 
focus on people, the money comes. So you have to treat your tenant like a client. And, you know, when you go to nice restaurants, you really like the service. I go to restaurants with good service. So you treat me good. You know, the food isn't good. You take it off my bill. You're apologetic. You make sure I I get my next meal. So I feel like you treat your your tenant like a good client. You fix things when you say you make things easier for them to pay and they appreciate. They feel respected and they and they pay you. They pay you. They're happy to pay. I have ones where I bought places that were occupied and um, you know, they're always nervous whenever you, whenever a building is sold. So I didn't raise Yeah. Yeah. They don't know what's going to happen. A lot of uncertainty. Um, So what I do first is I establish the trust first. I introduce myself. I say, these are the things we could pay. What needs to be fixed? I fix all their stuff. I fix it up. I paint, make it look nice. And I say, so um, because of all this, you know, the rents are this and that, um, I do have to increase your rent a little bit. And they're usually happy to pay because they're so happy that they have all their needs met, all the stuff that they have been wanting to get fixed, says fixed all this time. And and place is nice. So yes, they are happy to pay more money because they have a good landlord and they're happy and comfortable in their place. So I think if you always focus on a tenant, you focus on the sellers whenever you're trying to buy a house from them, you focus on the, on the people and they will give you what you want. I love that. That's a great principle. And you're treating people like people, right? And you know, yeah, everyone, yeah. everyone can appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Some, some people think it's all about the money. You know, they just focus on, on them paying the rent. You got to owe this or that, but you don't think about them. So it's like, why would the, they'll go be constantly on the defense. They don't feel like you care about them. So they don't, they're not going to want to work with you. So establish that trust, see things from their perspective and you guys can have a great relationship. Buy and hold is a long-term game. You don't want to have tenants you're fighting with constantly because it, it will stress right. you out. So if you have with all your tenants, you can stay in it for the long haul. Which is, and it's, I, it's honestly, that's a big fear. You know, my fiance, she had a buy and hold property earlier in her life before we met. And she had a really bad tenant situation that she's still, yeah. you know, she's still like is almost scarred from for like residential real estate investment. Like she doesn't want to get into it at all. She's like, you know, when we buy property, it's got to be commercial. And, you know, those situations happen. But I feel mm-hmm. like your strategy is a great way to mitigate that, have it happen way yeah. less and, yeah. you know, set yourself up for success long-term because you're right, you know, having long-term tenants there is the dream. Having an investment property with tenants there for 15 years, like yeah. you didn't have yeah. to, you know, do marketing to get it filled again and do this and that. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely a great strategy. Now, yeah, I'm, go oh, go ahead. Yeah. It, it, I was going to switch topics. So go ahead. It leaves me able to focus on on uh, like bigger projects and I don't have to go back and do a turnover. I can focus on acquiring bigger and better properties. So yeah, even though the rent might, might, you know, as years go on, the rent is low, but I value them staying a long time. I value no headaches so that I can focus on getting the bigger bag, which is more properties. So yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So let's talk about being a defensive investor now and, you know, building a recession and pandemic proof portfolio. You know, what happens yeah. if you're using credit and different types of loan programs and hard money and then, you know, the bottom falls out? Like that's yeah. how people lost tons of properties and, and went bankrupt in 2008, right? Is being over leveraged. So I'm really curious about this. Like, how do you gauge like how defensive you're being with your investing yeah. and your overall portfolio? 
Yeah, so even though I use risky things, I use them like my risks are calculated. So I don't invest in hot neighborhoods because I feel like things are more, uh, more, more volatile, basically, you know. If you invest in hot neighborhoods, there's a lot of competition, which means you have to get in bidding wars. You might be buying overpriced. You get emotional. You've got neighbors and the RCOs who are fighting you against us. So I invest in like low key hidden gem areas that are just good old fashioned properties. So because I'm I am using um, you know the credit cards and 100%, I'm confident that I'm buying at a low. Uh, um, at, at below market value. And so because of that, I, even in a bad market, you know, if the market tanks, because it's not in a volatile area, the value shouldn't really change that much. So even though overall nationally prices are high, there are still a lot of sub markets, a lot of micro markets that are pretty stable and pretty constant. So even if it does turn and get bad, the places where I'm investing, it's not going to be affected that much. So I make sure I invest in two areas I do long-term rentals with Section 8 where the money is guaranteed. Um, I don't do Airbnb because that's like, because it's, I don't invest in, in new things because regulations come in and change things. Also, um, that's more active. I'm, I'm a more passive investor. I do the work up front, you know, with the buying and renovation. And then with the management, I do passive things anyway, but I don't do like new, shiny, everything's doing it because to me, it's just a while. So being a defensive investor is not having FOMO, investing in hot neighborhoods, not caring if someone flipped a house for hundred grand in this area. So this is just about investing in try to neighborhoods and hidden gems and doing, you know, old fashioned stuff, so not, nothing sexy. Honestly, the boring investments are sexy to me though, because yeah, yeah, that, that, that's like what no one's looking at, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there's no competition. That's right. So no when com- you're identifying the exactly no competition, best price, you're not getting in a bidding war. And I mean, you touched on so many good things, not having FOMO. It's so, it's so easy to get FOMO when you hear about someone making a hundred K in three months on a, on a single yeah. flip or whatever. But I like if your strategy is to buy and hold, I like the, you know, go to unsexy areas. And I'm curious what lens you're looking through. I know that deals are brought to you, you know, but say you're just driving around and, you know, there's like the driving for dollars concept for, you know, real estate investing, like just keeping an eye out for, you know, shrubs and and grass that's overgrown and like the exterior of the house that looks run down. It's like, well, that's probably how the interior looks too. I wonder if this is a, a tenant or if this is a homeowner, like how are you really looking at investments for the buy and hold situation where you're like, is it certain neighborhoods? Like how are you uncovering hidden gems? I guess is the question. Well, so it started with um, me investing where my family is in West Philly, (laughs) and that was an undervalued neighborhood. And now when things get hot, um, starts in center city and then it just expands. So whenever it gets hot in my neighborhood, I just move over. So it's just about me moving okay. over further and further away from where the hotness is. Interesting. So. All right. Yeah. So, so you have that kind of gauge or meter and you're like, oh, it's getting a little too hot. I'm going to step away from the fire here. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that's how you can benefit from appreciation too. When you right. are in these areas, as soon as the, the retail investor or whatever you want to call them, as soon as they find out about them, they come in and drive the price up. So even though appreciation isn't my play, I benefit a lot from it a lot. 
So as soon as people come in, I'm like, oh, time to refinance. I refinance and I take that money to the next hidden gem area. Mm, so true. So quick story to support that. I spent mm. some time in Bali over the last couple of years. It was my dream to have a company and be able to go live there. And I'm a big surfer. So it's like a famous surfing area in Southeast Asia. So I went to Bali and I had heard from a lot of my friends that, oh, Semenyak used to be the spot. That was like, you go to the airport and then you're like 20 minutes away. It's this place called Semenyak. It's right on the beach. Da, da, da. And then if you imagine like everything outside of that is just like tropical, rainforest, locals, like no, you know, Western influence, no like new restaurants. And then mm -hmm. over the last five and 10 years, it's slowly expanded from that. And yeah. now it's, it's that Chenggu that the next city over is the spot. But now, you know, in another five years, it'll be, you know, Pereranon and Echo Beach, right? So the concept that you're describing is like buy an Echo Beach now and wait five years and the metropolitan and the city center and all the population will continue to grow out because naturally it's more expensive in the city center. So then people find those outskirts and it just starts to develop from there. I think that's genius. Exactly. It's a really smart yeah, strategy. As long as you're cash flowing, then it doesn't, it, like you're not even waiting yeah. for it. So I cash flow pretty well in these areas. And so the cash flow comes and then appreciation comes. It's just, just perfect to me. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. So, I'm curious if you have any book recommendations. Do you like to read? Yeah. So I think everyone should read How to Win Friends and Influence People. It is like the book to being in. If you're an entrepreneur, if you're a buy and hold investor, working with people, you need to have these principles. It's not about you all the time. People don't care about you. They care about themselves. So if you talk to them, get them what they want, like working with wholesalers and sellers and lenders, always give them what they want. So because I have narrowed down, always giving people what they want and what they need, I can always get what I want and need. So like with my contractors, right now I have a, a deadline of, of finishing at the end of the month. And I'm like, what do you need to get done? Is it money? Is it tools? Like whatever. So always get them what they need. I make them feel important. I say, hey, you did a great job. So they stay motivated. So it's like, if you read the principles in the book, which are making people feel important, appreciating them when I, when I do good things and making sure it's, it's sincere, you know, not flattery, but just taking notice when they do good things and, 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 and sharing that appreciation, making them feel important and how to get things that you want, which is essentially getting them what they want. So I think that's a great book. Everyone needs to read it. I started hiring people. I'm making them read it too because I'm noticing when I talk to my tenants and it's not they're, they're they're saying things and criticizing when they shouldn't criticize. So I'm like, don't criticize, don't don't do that. So mm. um, there's certain ways to talk to people, and when you learn how to work with people, you'll be successful. And the first chapter in his book, he says, learn how to deal with people, and you'll make tons of money. And it is true. It's true. I love that. It's a great book. I've read it more than yeah. once. And, you know, it's constantly something that just like, it comes up all the time. You're always working and dealing with people. And the yeah. simple thing of just making them feel important and recognizing them goes so far. So that's just it one does. principle. Yeah. I and I, I work with a lot of, I work with other women who are investors too. And this one, she had this principle of not saying that he's doing a good job, my contractor. I said, why not? You know, this is his pride. He he, he has pride in his work. So tell him when he does a good job, it makes him feel good, makes him want to keep working. And when you mm -hmm. ask for things, he'll want to give it to you and show you how nice of a job he did. So it's, right. a, it's a concept that a lot of people don't get. 
And I'm like, it's so important. Like it makes, it makes you, it makes you, it makes you feel good. So do it with the other people, make them feel good too. Yeah. I love that. And speaking of other women, I mean, this is a pretty male dominated industry. Yeah. So have you found many, you know, powerful women like yourself that are totally, you know, disrupting the, the status quo of the male dominated industry as far as real estate, real estate investment? Um, do you have like a, a network of, of women that you, you like to, you know, help each other and like, like um, what's that, what's that like, be, you know, ex- not, being, not being you? Many. Yeah, it's not that many. I wish there were more because some women, uh, I don't know, they like to compete, you know, it's, it's a typical thing that, that women do. Um, but, and the reason, like my, my husband, he has a group of real estate investors and they talk on the regular, they have a group. I'm like, I wish, I wish we could have that. I don't know why we can't, but like I said, there's not that many women doing it, but there needs to be more. Because, like I said, real estate is a relationship-based industry. And because we care about people, we care about our tenants having heat, we care about this and that, we care about our community, it will be such a better place if women got more involved in it and actually felt like we belonged in it and didn't feel like we had to be tough or act like a man. Like, we bring our own qualities and feminine energy and it's really needed in the space. So I encourage all women to invest. The industry needs us to care about our contractors, tenants, you know, everybody. So if there's any message to the women, get in here, be yourself, take care of people, and you will be successful. 100%. And I have an introduction I'll make after this because I do know of a women's network of real estate professionals. So I would be happy to make that intro. And yeah, I mean, you guys should be growing together. I, I uh, com- You gals, I should say. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Masterminds are very powerful. Go ahead. So yeah, I, I definitely uh, agree. And we can we will encourage each other and help each other out. So yeah, thank absolutely. you. Absolutely. It's going to be a lonely feel, you know, when at work, you know, you have your coworkers and when you're out here doing it by yourself, it's extremely lonely. And I felt really lonely when I was having children. So I had like no people I was seeing a regular and I was just happy to see my contractor sometimes, but having a network of other people, other like-minded people is, is very helpful. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, is there a question that I should have asked you or anything that you'd like to elaborate on from earlier? Um, I think we touched on a lot. We touched on network about the economy. I think I think this was a great interview. Thank you. <laughs> you did pretty well. Yeah. Well, thank you. You did great as well. So how can listeners contact you if they're interested? Uh, so right now I have a landing page. I'm working on a website, but at Janelle, J-H-A-N-E-L Wilson.com. And I'm going to start writing blogs and I'm going to have courses and guides to, to help each other out because a lot of things I see being taught now are cookie cutter, you know, teaching the 1% rule and all this other stuff, but investing is so much more than just that. So I'm going to provide some tips and share my experiences just so you can learn and grow from them. And yeah, I, I think it will be a nice kind of change in my career. You know, I've been focused on buying property so much, but now I'm trying to focus on teaching and helping people navigate through their buy and hold journey. I love that. And infopreneurship is such a needed aspect of learning nowadays. And it's also a very, very popular and accepted way for people to learn new things. So I really, you know, commend you in giving back and offering that knowledge and, you know, any way that I can help, I'm happy to. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. It was great being on here. Thank you for having me. 
Absolutely. Janelle Wilson, everyone, real estate investor out in Philadelphia. She is amazing, as you just heard. And I really appreciate you being on, Janelle. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want to accomplish your real estate goals, then I highly suggest downloading my free ultimate real estate goal setting framework. The link is in the description of the show and it will help you break down your annual income goal into the amount of phone calls, appointments, or open houses you need in order to achieve that goal. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.